How you guys doing today? Some of you are doing well. How are the rest of you doing today? You're not even going to smile? There it is. Oh, you know who I'm talking to. Hey, it is good to see you this morning. I am so glad that you are here. And I'm glad that we have opportunity to just bask in the presence of God and to thank Him for all that He has done and to give glory back to His name. Are you glad for that opportunity today? Come on. Are you glad? Yeah. We've got reason to give Him glory today. He has been faithful and good to us. So faithful, so good. Praise God. Praise God. Well, I am glad that you've joined us today for this purpose, and we are going to just dive in today. We are going to dive in. If you would grab your Bibles, if you didn't bring one with you, you should be able to reach over and grab one in arm's length somewhere around you. Um, We're going to get back into this story that we started just last week as part of a a larger group of stories talking about a specific family that Jesus loved. Jesus loved this family, and what I love about it is what it speaks to us. Because in the same way that he loves this family, he loves this family. Right? And and in a way, we are together, one body. But at the same time, he interacts with each of us individually. Isn't that cool? Isn't that awesome? That is so good, and, and it's such an encouragement to me because some of you are very weird. Some of, we all have our idiosyncrasies. That's a better way to say it. We all have our idiosyncrasies, right? We're different, and God comes and meets us all individually right where we are, right? And so I love the fact that there's three siblings, and he meets each of those different siblings right where they're at. And that there's three stories, one about each of them. It's just such a beautiful and rich thing, and it's an encouragement to me as a father as well. It's an encouragement to me that, um, that I'm not carrying the weight of trying to help my kids serve Christ alone, because he is going to individually meet with them right where they are at. That's an encouragement to me, and yes, I have a part in it, and yes, that my primary responsibility is pastoring my own family. That is That is my responsibility, but God does not work only through me in my family's life. That would be a terrible design, because he meets each of them individually, and so richly I love that we come and we meet together as a group, and we worship him, but that each individually he comes and works and meets with us. That's such a rich thing. And so we're going to keep diving into the story we started last week about Lazarus, and so if you would grab, once you grab your Bibles, open them up to John chapter 11. Today, if you have one of those church Bibles, that'll be on page 897. You can also find uh, uh, on praise.fyi, uh, all of the notes, all of the scriptures we're going to be reading through today, along with an opportunity to take notes. And at the bottom, you'll see all the questions and everything we're going to be working through in our community groups Uh, tonight. So John chapter 11. While you're turning there, I just want to give you a little bit of a setup. I'm going to read two verses or a couple of verses just leading up to it to give you an idea of what John is trying to accomplish as we get into this story because it's such a key and important story for us. And John tells us really just plainly 
as we focus in on Christ, here's what he's trying to accomplish. At the very end of John, the very last verse, here's what he says. In John chapter 21, verse 25. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. He said, I can't get it all. So I'm going to focus. He said, I'm going to specifically focus on one thing in particular. Here's what he says in a chapter before that in John chapter 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Okay, so really, let's be really clear. John's sitting down to write this book. He says, what am I going to try to accomplish here? He says, I want everybody to know this life. I want everybody to experience it. And how are they going to go about experiencing it? By believing that Jesus is the Christ. Okay, so that's, that's his mission statement right off the bat. Okay, so now let's go back to John chapter 11 today. Uh, we read the first, what we'll call half of this story last week, but not really half. I just was going a little slow, so I'm going to have to go a little faster this week. Starting in verse 18. Last week we, we covered the fact that Jesus waited a couple days. Very specifically, it says the reason why he waited was because he loved them. He wanted them to see his glory. And uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us the reason why he wanted us to see his glory is that as we behold him, as we focus on him, we become like him. Okay, so it was an act of love for him in that suffering for them to work in it for their good. Verse 18 is where we're going to pick up, though, after uh, last week. Here's what it says. Bethany was near Jerusalem. Oh, and Lazarus is dead by this point. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. So there's a couple things that are really Important for us to understand, Mary is remaining in the place of the official kind of mourning process. It was not a private thing. It was very public. Everybody's doing it together, right? Like, look at it. There's a whole bunch of people that love them that show up at their house, and they're all wailing together, okay? You could hire official and, and professional wailers to do the wailing for you during the mourning process after somebody's death. You, you hire flute players to just sit in the background and play a dirge during this mourning process. And so Mary stays in this place. Jesus and the disciples are coming, and he can't do it quietly. He can't just slip in and out. Somehow they find out ahead of time Martha heads out to meet him. Okay? Here's what it says. Uh, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now, many of you who have been in the church for any length of time have heard this story preached on dozens of times. 
And if you've heard this sermon preached on dozens of times, you've probably heard a dozen different interpretations of what is happening here. So I'm not going to give you more conjecture. I'm going to try to stay to basically what we find here. There's a whole lot I don't know in this story. And I'll just tell you right up front, I don't know exactly all of the things that are happening. What we do know is when Martha sees Jesus, she says, first, okay, this didn't turn out the way I wanted it to, Jesus, but my faith is still in you. Then Jesus says, ah, but your brother's going to rise again. And Martha responds, I know he will rise again in the last day. And her theology here spot on, right? There were two possible theologies she could have had with the resurrection. Yes, no, like it's binary. She went with the yes, which is the Pharisee uh, approach and Jesus's approach. So her theology is spot on, but Jesus seems to be pressing her beyond her theology in order to interact with him in particular. Here's what it says. Jesus responds. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Sorry, verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. What a rich kind of back and forth here between Jesus and Martha. And I think there are layers of belief and unbelief, doubting and faith. I think there are layers of having a theology that that maybe needs to go deeper and focus on Christ. I think there's lots of stuff happening, but I don't know for sure. And sometimes I think as we read scripture, we work so hard, I've mentioned this before, to like atomize it, to break it all down and put it in little boxes so we can know this is exactly what's happening. And sometimes I don't think that's the right way to approach it. Let me give you an example. Just this week, in my own personal reading, I don't know if it was Monday or Tuesday, I came across a passage of Scripture that I could not understand. Like, I was trying to figure out what it was saying. So I read other versions, some of which, like, do a more interpretation and less, like, giving you the exact words. And some of those gave what they thought it was trying to say. And I read commentaries and what all of those commentaries thought that the writer was trying to say. Here's what it actually said in Luke chapter 11, verse 18. So here's why this caught my attention. Jesus, um, sorry, 11, verse 39. Jesus regularly hits religious leaders hard. So for those of us who are religious leaders, there's like a super caution there for us. So anytime Jesus goes after the Pharisees, I hear or try to hear what Jesus says loud and clear. Okay? Here he goes after a Pharisee whose house he is in. Okay? So this is something you want to pay attention to if you're a religious leader. Verse 39. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. How's that if you're a religious leader? This morning I had my water bottle, okay? And unfortunately, I left the water bottle that I had filled at home. 
So I get in my truck, and there's an empty water bottle there. It's one that you clean out. You, but I hadn't cleaned it out, and I had drained it, and it had been sitting in my cup for a few days, or in my cup holder in my truck for a few days. So I'm like, oh, that's fine. I'll just refill it with water. It looks clean, right? I popped that sucker open, and I smelled it, and I was like, ugh! There's a big difference between the outside and the inside. The inside had this stench to it. What Jesus says is, you're doing a really great job with that outside. The inside kind of stinks. Greed, wickedness, that's what's in there, okay? And then he continues on, and he says, here's the solution for you, okay? 1139. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Verse 41. But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. So I read that, and I thought, wait a second. Jesus just said that what they have on the inside is greed and wickedness. Alms is giving as an act of piety to the poor. How in the world do you give greed and wickedness in order to be clean? So I thought on that, and I couldn't quite figure it out. And I think that was good. Because instead of just saying, oh, I got that, and packing it in little boxes, all through the day on Tuesday... And all through the day on Wednesday, till about Thursday morning, I was thinking about that verse. And I was just letting it work around inside of me. About a year ago, my wife bought some dryer balls. Okay? I'd never heard of dryer balls before. I don't know where she learned about dryer balls. It was probably on Facebook. And when I find out who you are. <laughs> dryer balls are these little balls of fabric that are kind of sewn together. And I don't know if this is how you're supposed to do them. When I do the laundry, I just throw them all in. And then instead of using dryer sheets, these things kind of rotate around. They kind of knock the laundry around. It was, I used to put shoes in there on occasion, and then I got busted for that by Ken Wallace. Thanks, Ken. Said makes everything smell like shoes. So this way, it's instead of putting fabric softener in, like you put these in, and it keeps everything soft, and it keeps everything fresh, and, and everybody's happy, okay? That's what I think of when I think of how we should interact with Scripture. I think sometimes we work so hard to break it down and fully understand it, and sometimes we shouldn't be consuming it, but instead letting it consume us. Sometimes we need to think on it and think on it and think on it and say, okay, what does this speak to me of me? And take some time with it. And this verse here is Jesus is talking to Martha. And he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Boy, I don't know all of Martha's motivations. I think it's probably pretty complex. And you'll hear me say that a couple of times today. I don't know everything Martha's thinking here. What I do know is this, as a result of her interaction with Jesus, probably some faith and some doubt, belief, 
unbelief, all of those things mixing together, probably rising up hope. Does he actually mean what he's saying? And all of those things mixed together, you end up with two of the highest statements of who Jesus Christ is in the New Testament. I am the resurrection and the life, and you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. It's all here in this one passage. So Martha says all of that to Jesus. Jesus says all of that to her, and then he sends her back to get her sister. When she had said this, she went and called their sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Interestingly, it seems Jesus never actually goes into Bethany on this day. Okay? Martha comes out, meets him outside. She goes and gets Mary and sends Mary out as well. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her weeping, he was deeply troubled in his spirit, or deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And when he said, where have you laid them, laid him, they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. There's a whole lot going on here. Um, Mary's response to Jesus is very similar to Martha's, except without that statement of faith at the end. And Jesus comes and sees her weeping and them weeping, and it says that he was deeply moved in his spirit, greatly troubled, and he weeps. The word that's translated as deeply moved here is a word that's used twice in this story and then three other times in the Gospels. Two of the times it's used in the Gospel, it's, a, it's like a, a firm warning. One time it's a stern rebuke. Outside of the Bible, it's used as like a, it's actually used for a horse in war snorting in anger. So when it says that Jesus is deeply moved, this isn't just grief. There's anger here. He's upset, and it says that beyond that, he's also greatly troubled. And I've read in the last two weeks since we started studying this story, as I started studying this story, all of the different reasons why people think that Jesus was angry here. Some people think that Jesus is angry because they don't have faith or believe that he's going to do what he said he was going to do. Some people think he's angry because there are those who are questioning whether he really loved Lazarus. Some people say that he's angry at death, his great enemy. Some people say that he's greatly troubled, not just at death, but at the cost and the price that he will have to pay in order to win the victory over death. I have no idea why Jesus was greatly troubled and deeply moved. I would say it was probably a mix of all of those things 
and none of those things. I think he sees Mary weeping. I know this. The last time I deeply wept, like ugly cry wept, I was in my kitchen trying to open a pickle jar. And I wanted those pickles, but I wept not just over the pickles. Truly. It wasn't just the pickles. I couldn't open the jar, but there were layers upon layers of complexity that went into that moment. And that pickle jar was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I think what's important to see here is that God made us with emotions because we are in his image. And he is a God with emotions. And I believe that it is all of those things. And I think it's Mary weeping and being surrounded. She's on the ground in front of him weeping. And everybody around weeping along with her. I think it's all of those things mixed together. And all of the complexity of that I think is important for us to see because in the same way that we have that experience, he has that experience. He knows us in our emotions. So after he weeps, it says that he... uh, Again, uh, so the Jews said, see how he loved them. But some of them said, "Eh, really? Because if he loved them, couldn't he have opened the eyes of the blind man and also kept this man from dying? Verse 38, then Jesus, again deeply moved, angry, again came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Here, I just want to give a shout out to all the King James fans in the room. Because King James said, Lord, he stinketh. (laughs) Look it up at some point. That's my gift to you. I think the word stink is a word that benefits by two syllables. Stinketh. Use it. It's yours. I'm a giver. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) But in the ESV, he has an odor. There's probably an odor at this point. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Now here's what is so interesting. Because Jesus just said at the beginning of this, The reason why he waited was so that they could see the glory out of his love for them, okay? Right? That was his gift to them in the midst of all of this, right? But it says that in order to see it, they need to believe. You know what's really interesting is when you go to the end of the story and you read what people's response, all these people who were standing around, it says some of them believed. They just saw a guy who had been dead for four days, raised. And some of them are like, oh my goodness, this is the one. And some of them are like, meh, maybe. How does that happen? 
The only way that works is if we are not rational thinking creatures first. But if we are wanting creatures first, if I want to believe, I will think accordingly. If I do not want to believe, I won't think accordingly. Our mind, I believe, is built upon our hearts. Do you want to believe? If you believe, then you'll see his glory, he says. Continues on, he says, so roll back that stone. Keep flipping to the wrong page here. Uh, So he says, so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, not our Father, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the count of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me again for their sake. Verse 43, and when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And that cry is the same cry. It's used five other times. One of those is when he enters Jerusalem and everybody's shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Four of the times, it's when there's a crowd saying, crucify him. It is a shout of raw authority. Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. His hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. There are three times in the Gospels when Jesus raises somebody from the dead that we know of. There's the widow of Nain's son where Jesus and his disciples are approaching the city. As they're approaching the city, they see this processional coming out. Again in mourning. And he walks right into the midst of them and touches the bier on which that body laid and says, young man, I say to you, get up. Doesn't matter the uncleanness of it. He just walks right into the middle of it and touches it. And you know what I love about that story? Nobody follows that up with, now Jesus, when he was dead, he was unclean. Why? Because he just raised the dead. It also took care of the uncleanness problem, right? He can raise the dead. He can deal with the uncleanness. Second was Jairus' daughter. For Jairus' daughter, he walks right into a room, sits down on the bed, takes his hand in hers, and says, Talitha kum. There are only a few times in the Gospels where the writer decides it is important for me to preserve the original Aramaic that Jesus spoke in. This is one of them. Talitha kum, little girl, get up. That word talitha seems to be almost like a pet name 
sweetheart, it's time to get up now. Just like I do on Tuesday mornings when I go in and sit on my daughter's bed and take her by the hand and say, sweetheart, it's time to get up now. This time, for Lazarus, it isn't a whisper. It's not even just a firm command. It is a shout of raw authority. Lazarus, come out. But you know what's interesting? All three of the times, whether a whisper, statement, or a shout, all three of the times, he gives a command to a dead person. How could Lazarus do what Jesus just told him to do? Like if Jesus would have commanded him, Lazarus, decompose. He's got that one. Lazarus, lay there and do nothing. He's got it. But that's not what he commanded him. He commanded him to do the thing that was impossible for him to do. And you might be going, okay, come on, this is obvious, Alan. Well, don't let it be obvious. Stop and think about it. He commanded the impossible to a little girl, a young man, and to Lazarus. None of them had the power to do what he told them to do. And yet he told them to do it anyways. And they did. And the only way that works is that when he gives a command, that word comes with the power to actually accomplish it. So when he speaks to Lazarus, it does raise him from the grave. Now I suppose that Lazarus's obedient response is to get up and actually come out. But it was Jesus' word that raised him from the dead. So he could have, I guess, rolled over and said, I'm not feeling it today, Jesus, and hit the snooze button. Nine more minutes, Jesus. But Jesus speaks, does, and then his obedience is the response, and he comes out. Here's why this is important. It's not just a cute little side note. This is of vital importance for us to understand. And here is why. There's a whole lot of commands from Jesus in the Bible. And some of them are a little intense. Do not be anxious about your life. Be perfect. As your heavenly Father is perfect. Love your enemies. Enter through the narrow gate. And here's the thing. Uh, be glad when you're persecuted. Here's the thing. These 
are just from one sermon. One sitting with Jesus. And every single one of these are impossible for me. I look at these commands of Jesus, and there's a couple different possibilities for me. And some people do each of these. Number one, we try to soften them. Oh, he doesn't really mean love your enemies. He just means don't kill them. Right? He just means, like, don't hate them. That's good enough. It's not what it says. The second thing is, maybe we just say stuff like, Jesus doesn't really understand my life. Right? Like, he doesn't know the things that I deal with and why I'm anxious. Really? Really? Jesus knew his expiration date. And when this happens in, in John, this is probably a month, max two, before he dies. And it's coming up on it. And there are seven times in the gospel where it talks about he knows the hour, right? Seven times he says, I know when the hour is. Even if you look at the beginning of this story, he says, there are 12 hours in the day. And this ain't it, friends. We can go back to Judea. I know you're afraid we're all going to die, but it's not going to happen because there's 12 hours in the day. Everything before the story of Lazarus is my hour has not yet come. Everything after Lazarus is, my hour has come. So if, if this is a time in the day, and there's 12 hours in the day, this is 11.57, okay? He's coming up on it. And he knows, and he still says, do not be anxious about your life. He says to the disciples, we're okay. We won't go into Bethany. But here's the thing. I still got three minutes left. I still got time. It's not yet. Do not be anxious comes from somebody who knows our experience. Do not be anxious about your life. The third possibility is for those who say, you know what? I can't soften those commands. He meant them. He really means be perfect. So we take perfection on Oh, I won't be anxious. Oh, I won't, I won't hate my enemies. As if it's like a heavy burden that we bear. Can I say all three of those are wrong? Because here's the thing. When Jesus gives a command, he gives the power to actually do the command. When he says be perfect, the power and the promise is that he gives us what we need for perfection. He's the only one who can do that. Lazarus, come out. The power is in that for him actually to accomplish it. The only thing we should be putting on our shoulders is his yoke. And that might sound heavy, but the whole point of a yoke was to take two oxen and yoke them together so that they're pulling alongside. Who's the other ox? Well, that's Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
So when you see a command of Jesus in Scripture, don't see it as a heavy weight. Don't try to wash it out, but instead realize that it is a command and a promise in one. That the power is there to actually accomplish what he tells us to accomplish. So here's what I'm saying. All I'm asking for from you is this. Just reframe the way that you think about this. 